0: be in the gospel of John chapter 2 this morning. John chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 today. In chapter 1, we saw the prologue from verses 1 through 18 where we laid the theological foundation, if you will, for this gospel. We were introduced to important themes and words, terminology in that section. Then we saw the testimony of John the Baptist. We saw the calling of the first disciples. Now, as we turn to chapter 2, we're going to see the beginning of what they call the Book of Signs. This is just scholars have referred to it as, because now we're turning our attention to look at the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we'll be doing that for the rest of this gospel. Once we get to chapter 12, till the end of the gospel, we'll be looking at the final week of the life of Jesus. But until then, we have in mind John's purpose for this gospel. It's found in chapter 20 at the end of the chapter that Jesus did many other signs we learn at the end that signs play an important role in this gospel he says that Jesus did many other signs that are not included here but these are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God so that tells us something about the signs that John does choose to put in his gospel, few as they are. He's including these here for a very particular purpose. And for that reason, it's noteworthy, something that we should pay attention to, that he doesn't use the very popular word miracle or wonder. Instead, he uses the word sign to talk about Jesus' miracles And why is that? Because John is understanding and wants us to understand that the miracles of Jesus are not ends in and of themselves. He's not just writing a bunch of awesome stuff that Jesus did. Instead, he wants to include these here so that you will understand and I will understand that these are signs pointing to something. They are pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. And not so that we would stand and look at the sign and admire the sign, but so that we would believe ourselves that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God. So we will be introduced to that word here today of sign as we look at the first sign, which is the wedding at Cana. So if you would take your Bible and stand with us as we read verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the living God. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, I ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts so that we could see great and wonderful things from your word. Lord, I pray that we would not be as those who stand and admire the sign, but that we would admire what the sign points to, which is the glory of the Son of God. I pray that you would... Empower me to preach your word faithfully and accurately, setting aside all of my own human opinions, and that your word would go forth speedily and be honored this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. We begin by considering the setting, which is set for us in verses 1 and 2. John tells us that this event is on the third day. We are walking through this action-packed week that began with the testimony of John the Baptist. During that time, the baptizer bore witness about who he is and also who Christ is to the Jewish delegation that came to him out in the wilderness and to his disciples who quickly followed after the Lamb of God. Jesus has gathered together five disciples so far, the unnamed disciple from verse 37, whom we have identified as likely being John the Apostle, the author of this gospel, Simon and his brother Andrew, and then Philip and Nathaniel. John now takes us in this same week to a wedding that is at Cana in Galilee. Cana was likely a tiny village about nine miles north of Nazareth. Some say that Nazareth was a town of a few hundred people And Cana was even smaller than that, perhaps not even a hundred people in this village. We have a lot of small towns like that in the West Texas area, don't we, where there's more cows than people. One thing that we know about small towns is that pretty much everybody knows everybody. Isn't that how it works? And indeed, it was no different during this time. A wedding in our day and age is an important event, absolutely. Couples spend thousands and thousands of dollars at their wedding. It can get really pricey from the dresses to the tuxedos to the event and the decorations and so on. Well, in the setting of our text, if you can imagine, it was an even bigger deal. Some say that weddings would customarily last a few days. Can you imagine that? I know on our wedding day, we were ready when the day ended. Imagine doing several days of that. Some say that they could even last as long as seven days, seven day wedding. It was a really, really big deal. In many cases, the whole village would be invited to the wedding, ending with a procession where they would carry the bride and groom to their doorstep and they would send them off with a grand blessing. This was a really big celebration and it should be. A wedding day would come after about a year of the betrothal period. The couple would be betrothed for a year and the husband to be. His duty was to go and make everything ready, to make preparations for their life together. Sometimes he would build an addition to the family home and that's where him and his wife would live. Or he would just go and make another home together. During this time, he's making provisions, but also demonstrating that he is able to provide for his wife. Not only is he getting ready for their lives together, but he was also responsible for paying for their massive wedding celebration. We see that among the guests here at this wedding, we have uh, Mary, who is the mother of Jesus, as you know. But John doesn't name her, does he? He refers to her simply as the mother of Jesus. And verse 2 tells us that Jesus and his disciples are there as well. This is probably referring to the five disciples that we were introduced to in chapter 1. Since Nazareth and Cana are so close together and such small towns, it's likely that Mary and Jesus have some sort of connection with the wedding party. Perhaps their family or friends or just acquaintances but it's in this setting that Jesus performs his first miracle at this large celebration in a small village. Isn't that something? That the Son of God would choose to launch his public ministry during a wedding. Doesn't that speak volumes of how God views the institution of not only marriage, but even the celebration of the wedding that he would honor this institution by launching his public ministry. He holds marriage and the wedding in high enough regard that he calls his people the what? The bride of Christ. We will be united to the bridegroom forever and ever at the, guess what, at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. But at Not everything is smiles and giggles at this wedding. We have a major problem here, don't we? Let's look at the problem in verses 3, 4, and 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Have you ever been to an event or perhaps even hosted people and some of the food or the refreshments ran out? It's a little bit of a nightmare. It's a little bit... Of a moment for anxiety. If you're hosting, you can definitely be caused to panic a little bit. And if you're just in attendance, sometimes it can even just cause rumblings in the crowd. But this wedding, running out of wine, wouldn't be like that, actually. This would be a really, really big deal. As we said a bit ago, the husband has spent the past year preparing for his bride, and he's responsible for providing all of the provisions for the guests at this wedding. This is one of the reasons why it was such a big deal that they ran out of wine. In some situations, guests could even file a lawsuit in this situation. Can you imagine that? You ran out of wine and you got sued for it. I just demonstrated to you that I didn't have enough money provide the wine, and now you're going to sue me. What are you going to take? Well, let us be reminded that Jewish culture was a culture of shame and honor. So it was deeply shameful to run out of wine for the people that you invited to come to celebrate your wedding who are bringing you gifts, and you've spent a year preparing, and you couldn't even make sure there was enough wine? How can this man take care of this woman who he's marrying if he can't even make sure to plan for enough wine at the celebration. What's wrong with this man? Perhaps he's no man at all. So it's not that they would just have to shut down the party earlier and maybe people will be a little bit sad that evening and it's okay, everybody will just buy some more tomorrow. This was a really big deal. He stood to be deeply shamed and embarrassed by the running out of wine. There's the mother of Jesus, evidently having some sort of inside knowledge of the supply of wine. She turns to Jesus to tell him they have no wine. And some people think that she's being presumptuous here, assuming that her son would perform a miracle. Others believe that perhaps she has learned to turn to Jesus whenever a need arises in their life. You see, Joseph at this point has likely passed away. Likely, what's happening is that Jesus is fulfilling that role in taking care of his mother. That's not such a bad deal now, is it, though? The Son of God is the one providing for you? I mean, geez, what a tough deal that is. But of course it would have been. She's being cared cared for and looked after by the God-man. So it would make sense that Mary has a history of there's an issue that arises. Let me turn to my son. My son always knows what to do. There would, you rest assured, there would never be a problem that they would run into that Jesus didn't have the answer for. So probably she's grown accustomed to doing this, and there's an issue that arises here at this wedding, and so she does what she normally does, and she turns to her son, says, here's a problem, they have run out of wine. This passage here is, I do want to take a moment to kind of, taken aside to point out that it's a passage It's often been used by Roman Catholics to support their doctrine of Mary as the mediatrix. If that language sounds bizarre to you, it should. Roman Catholicism teaches that Mary is the mediator of all graces to God's people. In the 1960s, the Pope called together a council to meet at the Vatican in Rome because he wanted to update some of the Catholic doctrine to sort of keep up with the times. This council was commonly referred to as the Second Vatican Council. And it produced a number of constitutions, declarations, and decrees. One of those constitutions is called the Lumen Gentium, which means the light of the world. And it focuses on the teaching of the church. And in that document, we find this following quote, about Mary, the Mediatrix. "...by her manifold intercession, she continues to win the gifts of eternal salvation for us. By her motherly love, she takes care of the brothers of her son who are still in pilgrimage and in dangers and difficulties until they be led through to the happy fatherland. For this reason, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles of Advocate, Auxiliatrix, Adiatrix and Mediatrix, end quote. That's what we call idolatry. Thomas Aquinas, who is one of the early church fathers of the Roman Catholics, or at least they claim him as their own, he says in his commentary about this passage, right here where we are, he says, quote, the role of Christ's mother was to superintend the miracle. Christ's mother assumed the role of a mediatrix, end quote. He says that she does this by interceding with her son to intervene. It's believed that she continues to do that today, that you pray to Mary and she goes to talk to the son because the son can't resist his mother. This is absolutely, I hope I don't have to tell you, completely False. And it's one of the many reasons why Roman Catholicism is a false religion. If you have those people in your life, they are the mission field. Evangelize them. So if ever you do find yourself in a conversation with a Catholic who wants to point to this passage in support of their idolatry of Mary as mediatrix, I want you to point them, you don't even have to leave this passage, point them to Jesus' response. Jesus said to her, Woman? What does this have to do with me? Does that sound like he is viewing her as mediatrix, as she is the one who dispenses all graces to mankind? It doesn't sound like that to me. But I do want to say that he's not being rude to her. In our context, this sounds very sharp and almost as a really sharp rebuke. But we do know that he's not calling her mother. He doesn't say mother or blessed virgin. He says woman. This sounds much harsher in our context, as I said, but historians say that this would be similar to the way that we in the South would say something like ma'am or lady. It is polite, but it's impersonal. It's the same word that Christ uses as he's on the cross and he entrusts his mother to the care of the beloved disciple. You remember the verse 19, chapter 19, verse 26. Woman, behold your son. He's distancing himself between from his mother. He's placing some distance here. He doesn't have a, a term of endearment for her, but a term that would cause her to realize there is now a change in this relationship. She must remember that she must first and foremost come to Him, not as her Son, but as Lord and God. And as such, His cares and concerns are not the same as hers. They are those of His Father who is in heaven. He gave His family a preview of this early on in His life, didn't He? You remember in Luke chapter 2, He's only 12 years old. They had gone down to the temple. The whole family was a real big to-do. And Jesus had stayed behind. He was there talking with the rabbis and the teachers in the, in the temple. And they realize it's kind of like a Home Alone moment. They realize, as they had already traveled away, heading back home, they realize Jesus isn't there. So they turn around to go look for him. And when they confront Jesus, he says, Why were you looking for me? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Some translations say, Did you not know that I must be about my Father's business? Either way, this is a glimpse of the reality that Jesus is here on a mission with heavenly priorities. His priorities are not like ours. In our text, He gives Mary a gentle reminder that He is about His Father's business. He responds, What does this have to do With me. Literally, in the original, it says, what to me and to you? What to me and to you? This is a Semitic expression that essentially means, what do we share in common about this concern? It's a rhetorical question, you see. The answer is nothing. What do you and I share in common about this thing that you're concerned about? It's not rude, just like his use of the term woman but it's definitely a sharp and clear response. And it's another way of him putting distance between the cares of his mother and himself. Surely this was difficult to marry, wasn't it? She's grown up with him. She's raised him. She's cared for him. She knew that this moment was coming, of course. The song, Mary, did you know? Of course she knew. She knew it was coming. She knew what was going to happen. But surely it was no less difficult for her in this moment to see her son and the relationship they have changing now and being reminded that his cares and concerns are those of his heavenly father. D.A. Carson says that she would, have, she would be confronted with the fact that nobody comes to the son with a quote-unquote inside track. It's not like she has an inside with him. Everyone comes to him as Lord. She needs to recognize Him and come to Him just as anyone else does. The Lamb of God, the light of the world, the bread of life, King of kings. He clarifies the reason for all of this is because His hour had not yet come. This is the first time that we see this term here, hour. Sometimes hour simply refers to the hour of the day, as it did back in chapter 1, verse 39. It referenced the 10th hour, but other times, especially when in reference to Jesus' ministry, it refers to the hour of suffering. It points us to the cross. In other instances, Jesus upsets the religious leaders by performing a miracle or teaching something that they're not fond of, as he often would. And John records that they wanted to do something, but they couldn't because it wasn't his hour yet. An example, chapter 7, verse thirty. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. As we read through any of the Gospels, we know that everything is leading to the cross. But you almost get more of that sense here in John, as John keeps recording this word hour over and over again at key moments. It reminds us that the cross is coming. The cross is coming Once we get to chapter 12, as I said a bit ago, we will see that the hour has come. From chapter 12 on, it's the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus is not operating here according to a human timetable. Not even the wishes of His own dear mother. But He is operating according to the divine will. He is here for a purpose. Yet, Mary, possessing and evidently persistent faith, she turns to the servants and tells them, do whatever He tells you. She doesn't know what's going to happen next, does she? She doesn't know. Do whatever He tells you. She has no idea what's going to go on. But she does have faith that He will do something. Friends, while we don't want to uh, fall into the danger of mariolatry, we do see that we can learn from her can't we just as we can learn from everyone else in scripture and we can learn of her example of persistent faith here when we pray to our Lord let us not grow weary in pleading for his intervention but let us instead by faith make our requests known trusting that God will intervene as he sees fit now we turn our attention to the sign verse 6 Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. As you know, the law prescribed various purity laws, and they had even more traditions on top of the laws that had been passed down. And that's where these six stone water jars come from. That's what they're doing nearby. These might have been used to wash the body from ceremonial uncleanness, or to wash the hands before eating, or to wash plates and cups. We don't know for certain what they would use these here for, but we do know that they're present and that they hold a tremendous amount of water In total, these water jars held between 120 gallons and 180 gallons of water. I'd hate to see that water bill, huh? We also know that they were empty. As Jesus tells them in verse 7 to fill them with water. So we have six water jars here used for the Jewish rites of purification that would hold up to 180 gallons of water with which to purify purify yourself with, and they're empty. Friends, I'm not a fan of overly allegorizing the plain meaning of a text, but I do believe that the Holy Spirit through John here is recording this sign for us, not only to tell us what happened, but to point to the emptiness of the dead religiosity of this day. If you recall, it's over the issue of ceremonial washing that the Jews are upset with Jesus and his disciples in Mark 7. In that chapter, we read that the Pharisees saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Mark records that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat Unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Did you hear that? The tradition of the elders, they make sure that they are purifying everything. And when they come home, they make sure that they wash. And you see then in that chapter, Jesus' disciples don't hold to these traditions. They come to Jesus and they ask, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? I mean, they can't believe it. What are they doing? They're not following what the traditions say, but they're eating with defiled hands. You know what Jesus' response is? Oh, I'm so sorry. Let me me make sure to make that right. No. No. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. This is the spiritual climate that Jesus is walking into, the spiritual climate that we see here at the wedding in Cana. And it's further indicated because here are jars that are used for purification, and they aren't even full. You know what that means is people couldn't go and purify their hands even if they wanted to. It's empty. It's the prophet Isaiah who prophesied of these people that they honor the Lord with their lips, but their heart is far from Him. They're obsessed with the external keeping of the law, adding their own traditions and saying that their traditions are on par with the authority of God's Word, All the while, their hearts are far from God. They are whitewashed tombs. They appear clean and righteous outwardly, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. That's one of the woes that Jesus pronounces on them. It would have been better for them to observe the law of Moses strictly while also keeping the spirit of the law. But they failed to see that the purity laws were meant to teach them of the holiness of God and the defilement of the flesh and their need to be pure within. God is not primarily concerned with whether or not people's hands were clean. He was primarily concerned with the condition of the heart. He's teaching them with these purity laws of the need to purify inside. What a commentary on the state of the religious state, system of the day. That there's this large wedding party. Lots of people are here. You think for sure we need to make sure that these stone jars are full. So that we can be pure before God. And they're empty. Those who live in a hypocritical religiosity will eventually show themselves to be hypocrites because they pursue righteousness that is merely external by following rules. There are those who want to look like good people, who want to look like a Christian, but they don't know God. I want to ask you, is that you this morning? Have you been pursuing outward righteousness while neglecting the condition of the heart. Jesus tells them to fill the jars with water, and they do. John writes that they filled the jars to the brim. They were completely full. Verse 8, he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. One of the ways that we know that John is recording this sign for a greater purpose than simply telling his audience of the exploits of the Messiah is that he doesn't really even record where and when the miracle happened. It just did, and we just assume that at some point in the text, whether it be when they drew the water out or when they filled the jars or when the water touched his lips, we have no earthly idea. John sees that as an insignificant detail, so he doesn't include it. He simply writes that Jesus told them to fill up the stone jars with water and take them to the master of the feast. Somewhere along the way, the water becomes wine. But what we do know is that it was really good wine. I know Baptists like to pretend that this is more akin to grape juice, but it's definitely wine, my friends. How do we know? Because John gives us the completely unbiased testimony of the master of the feast. This would have been someone who was a sort of head waiter over the event who would be overseeing the celebration. Not only does does this man not have any connection with Jesus, but he doesn't even know what happened. It says, though he did not know where it came from, he's got no idea what's going on here. This is a very reliable eyewitness testimony to the fact that Jesus performed an incredible miracle by completely bypassing the fermentation process of grapes, completely bypassing even the need for grapes, and simply converting the molecular structure of water to make it wine. How did he do that? That's an incredible miracle. It is displaying that Jesus has control over everything, over physical creation The master of the feast would tell us that this wasn't just any old wine, this was the good stuff. He tells the bridegroom in a manner of complimenting him that most people give the good stuff at the beginning. And then once everyone's senses are dulled, you know what that means, they bring out the lesser wine. But you have saved the best for last. Who does this? This man went from being on the verge of public humiliation for being such a poor host and provider that now he's being thought of as having displayed this unthinkable, lavish hospitality. Jesus saved the reputation of this man and the joy of this celebration. So what can we learn from this? In Jesus using the stone water jars to perform this miracle, we can see that this points us to the fact That Jesus is setting aside the old dead religious system. This is going to be further confirmed next week because John connects this story with the cleansing of the temple, which is highly symbolic. It would have been unthinkable to serve wine out of jars that were reserved for the Jewish rites of purification. But here, Jesus demonstrates that the way, that way of thinking, has passed away because something better is here. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And in Christ, we will see what the purity laws were meant to point to. Namely, the inward purity of the Lord, the heart that the Lord truly desires. Jesus lived a perfect and blameless life, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf so that the righteous requirement of the law might be not be fulfilled in those of us who walk according to the Spirit. I'm sorry, might now be fulfilled by those of us who walk according to the Spirit. We are now empowered to pursue holiness as God is holy, in as the law commands us to do. All because of the work of Jesus Christ. What about the wine? The fact that this miracle was turning water into wine teaches us something about the work of God in our hearts. You see, in the Old Testament, wine was often thought of as a symbol of joy. Psalm 104.15 says that God gives wine to gladden the hearts of man. Proverbs 31.6 says to give wine to those in bitter distress. When Jesus works His miracle of the new birth in our hearts, He does away with our empty attempts to uphold outward righteousness and instead fills us with joy unthinkable. When we are filled with joy from the Lord, we are filled to the brim just as those stone water jars were. John 15, 11, I love this verse. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus cares about your joy. Have you thought about that? Christianity is a religion that requires our obedience. Yes, it does. But don't think that for a moment that this is a dead, cold, lifeless religion that lacks joy. We have the greatest joy, the kind that this world can never give, because we have in joy in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have joy when we sing songs, don't we? Like what we just sang a bit ago, that when we've been there 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. That means from now. Through eternity, what we will be doing is joyfully singing the praise of God. Have you thought about that? Literally, the rest of your life on this earth and all through eternity is filled with joyful exuberance, singing the praise and worship of Almighty God. That's the religion that you and I have. It's not cold and dead and lifeless. But probably my favorite mention of wine in the Old Testament, it was in our call to worship, if you caught it. It's a prophecy of what we're going to see is the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. When you get home, compare them. It's Isaiah 25 and Revelation 19. He says in Isaiah 25:6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Think of that. All of us throughout time and space who belong to the Lord will be gathered together to the Lord who's going to make for us a feast Isn't that amazing? We're going to feast on the richest food, the kind that we've never tasted before. A feast of well-aged wine that has had all of eternity to age. And we will be united once and for all, the bride with the bridegroom. We have a taste of this joy now. Yes, we do. But then we will have it in fullness. If I could keep with the symbol of wine, Right now, we enjoy a sample of the wine of joy, but then we will have the whole cellar and the vine, all of it. We will be able to say to the Lord, as the master of the feast did to the bridegroom, You have kept the good wine until now. And all of this sign produces a very particular result. Verse 11. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. Lest you leave here today thinking that this passage is all about wine, John leaves us with what our takeaway ought to be. He says that this is the first of the signs of Jesus and as we said in the opening introduction, he uses this term To indicate to us that the miracles are not about the miracles. They are signs that point to something else. They're pointing to something greater. The reason why Jesus did this miracle is not first and foremost. So that they would not experience social embarrassment and shame. It's not so that the party could go on. All of those things happened. But first and foremost, He did this as a sign to manifest His glory. The glory of what? Chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only of the Father. The the glory that was manifested by Jesus in this sign is that He is the Son of God. Only God could convert water to be something entirely different. Only God has that power. And the disciples saw what the sign was pointing to. No doubt there were those at the party who saw the sign and enjoyed the wine and went on with their life. And then there were those whose life was forever changed who saw the sign and it pointed to the glory of the son and they believed in him as he says at the end of verse 11 they believed in him this miracle is a sign pointing to a deeper truth that we cannot behold with the human eye that can only be seen by looking with the eyes of faith the disciples had these eyes And because they did, they saw his glory manifested and they believed in him. I wonder, what about you? Do you have these eyes? Does this sign of Jesus turning water into wine make you excited about the miraculous provision that he's able to perform in your life? That Jesus can miraculously send a check in the mail. Hallelujah. Is that what you take away from this? Or do you see what it's pointing to through the eyes of faith, that it's pointing to Christ as all-glorious? Friend, this world will sell you an idea of joy and happiness that will only last but a moment. It is as empty as the water jars that we read about and will leave you that empty as well. But Christ offers us joy to the brim, joy unthinkable, joy unfathomable and never ending he can offer this to us because he lived a perfect life in our place the life that you and I were supposed to live but never could and he died in our place the life the, die, the death that you and I were supposed to die he bore the wrath of God on our behalf and on that cross he was not drinking wine he was drinking of the cup of the wrath of God and he died and was buried and was resurrected on the third day, and now is gone to prepare a place for us, as he tells us later in this gospel. He went to make a place for us, and now he offers us this great joy by turning to him, trusting in his finished work. And in all the rest of our days, we have that to look forward to, that one day we will be united to him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, And we will enjoy the good stuff. We will enjoy joy for the rest of eternity. May we all abandon futile attempts of self-righteousness as seen in the stone water jars and drink freely instead from the inexhaustible well of joy that is in Christ Jesus. Let's stand. We will pray together and we'll sing a song and head home. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to study and to see the work of Christ in his earthly ministry. We thank you that these miracles point to a greater truth, a deeper reality. And I pray that you would give us the eyes of faith to see that, that we would see the glory of christ and look beyond the signs look beyond the provision of our life that you have all the things that you've given us in our life that we would look beyond that even the great and wonderful miracles lord that we would see those as only pointing to your glory that we would stand in that glory stand in in amazement at that glory and believe upon the son for the rest of our days we pray this in the name of jesus amen